0: Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Yes, God. God don't never change. So, this is The Podcast, episode 294. Uh, I'm Douglas Wilson, and I'm grateful that you decided to join me so i'd i'd like to begin here by talking a little bit about infant baptism i'm a presbyterian and we baptize infants and not only do we baptize infants we it seems like recently we've been doing it every week so reminds me of the of the joke mark twain once told he mark twain was once asked if he believed in infant baptism and he said believe in it he said why i've seen it done <laughs> so, uh, what, is the, uh, what is the ground for infant baptism? For many people who grew up in evangelical Baptistic circles, it is regarded as sort of a, a Romish holdover that the, the Reformers, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Butzer and all those guys, did a great job in getting us free from the clutches of Rome. But they they didn't escape, they didn't get to escape velocity on every issue, and it is said it's argued that that infant baptism was one of those things that, where they didn't get to escape velocity. And I've I spent much of my life as an evangelical Baptist, and the early the whole early part of my ministry was that of an evangelical Baptist. I'll just uh, get into this by telling you all what happened to me, how how this happened. Uh, Not only did I grow up as a Baptist, but I grew up as the son of a very unusual Baptist, and this was a man, my father Jim Wilson, who believed and would teach whatever the text in front of him said. I don't think I don't believe with absolute consistency, but he did a remarkable job of it, and so it was from him. My father, kind of an Anabaptist, a godly Anabaptist type, he's the one who taught me the doctrine of generational succession. And the short form of that is that you can expect Christian parents can trust God for the salvation of their kids. And my dad was sort of a really weird exception to the general pattern. Many Christian uh, teachers think that you just hope and pray for the best and If it doesn't turn out that these things happen sometimes. But Dad was very convinced from Scripture that we could trust God for the salvation of our children, Uh, a doctrine I now have come to call covenant succession. Covenant succession. Now, when, and I won't go into all the details of this, but I became a Calvinist in 1988. And I was in the middle of preaching through Romans, which turns out in retrospect to have been a bad idea. And I began preaching Calvinistically. And when that happened, we were the only Reformed church on the Palouse, the area where uh, we are. Um, Moscow, Idaho, and Pullman, Washington are right in the middle of the Palouse. And because we were the only Reformed church, we started to attract sort of Presbyterian refugees or Reformed. Refugees who started coming because the messages were Calvinistic. Now, and then one young couple came, and they had a baby, and they asked me to baptize it. And my my reaction was, "Are you are you crazy? You know what? What what are you doing? What are you talking about?" And I I I realized, okay, I'm going to have to read up on this. I'm going to have to study this. And in the course of studying it, I was given. An essay on covenant succession written by a PCA pastor, Rob Rayburn, uh, who ministered in Tacoma, Washington for many years. So, Rob Rayburn was a Presbyterian who wrote a paper on covenant succession. And he was the first person I'd ever encountered who was arguing the same thing that my dad had argued that you can trust God for the salvation of your kids. But the thing that threw me was that he connected it to infant baptism. And the connection amounted for me, the connection amounted to this. Why don't you put your money, uh, your money where your mouth is, meaning why don't you put your water where your mouth is? If you are trusting God for the salvation of your children, why not baptize them? Well, that shook me uh, because it was approaching me through an area where I was already in substantial agreement. Okay. So I began to read a bunch of stuff on baptism, or I, I continued to read a bunch of stuff on baptism and wading through it. And I read a bunch of good Presbyterian books. I read Baptist books. I read, Pres, you know, working through the whole thing. And the Presbyterian books, however good they were, weren't scratching my itch. They, they, I had certain nagging questions. And I, they just weren't doing it for me. And so I, um, I began to write sort of an argument out for myself. And this, turned in, this eventually turned into my book, To A Thousand Generations, which is an argument for infant baptism, a good portion of which I wrote while I was still a Baptist or when I was up in the air as an Agno Baptist, not knowing where I stood and but i want what i wanted to do is i wanted to sort of i wanted to push the buckle into the seatbelt and i wanted to hear a click and what there there are a number of things here there's the argument from circumcision and so on but one of the more compelling arguments that i worked through was the argument from the uh, this is a dog that didn't bark argument it's an argument from silence but I think it's a very compelling argument from silence. The single biggest controversy in the New Testament was over whether or not Gentiles could be come into the church without becoming Jews first. That was by far and away the biggest controversy. It was the issue that dogged the Apostle Paul everywhere he went, it was the issue that precipitated the first ecumenical council, the Jerusalem council in. Acts chapter 15, a good portion of the New Testament revolves around this controversy. Can Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles, become Christians without becoming Jews? Can they become Christians simply on the strength of baptism without having to be circumcised as well? Okay, that's the that's the um, presenting issue, and it was hugely controversial. Now, Let's flip this around. Given the fact that there was such an uproar over gentiles coming into the church without becoming Jews, what would the uproar have been like if people who were manifestly Jews, like a 9-day-old infant boy who's just been circumcised, what would the uproar have been, not only not only are you letting gentiles who are not circumcised into the church, but you're kicking Jewish children out now could that have happened without controversy and it would have been controversy that if if you're basically teaching that a a reformed baptist view of the church was forming in the first century you totally have to exclude the children and i i wondered why why is there not a peep about this why is there no controversy why why isn't it Why doesn't it require an extra day of deliberations at the Jerusalem council? Why isn't there a second letter? There's no mention of it at all. And so, when you look at this, and and it's not a, uh, I'll bring this in for a landing, but if you look in the book of James, if a certain man, uh, a rich man, comes into your synagogue, James says, and he's all decked out, and you give him a preferential treatment, you become judges with evil evil motives. But James is talking about this man coming into a messianic synagogue, a Christian synagogue. And the, that's the word he uses, is synagogue. And then later in the same book, he says, is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, ecclesia. All right, so in the book of James, synagogue and ecclesia are being used interchangeably. If a man comes into your synagogue, don't show preferential treatment. And uh, at the end of the book, if any of the congregation is sick, they should call for the elders of the ecclesia. Now, if it's a synagogue in Jerusalem, and let's say it's the year 50 AD, and a Jewish infant boy is born and circumcised to parents in that synagogue, is he a member of that synagogue? Well, he would be if it was 50 BC, okay, before Christ came, he would absolutely be an olive shoot growing on the olive tree. If you want to argue that in the New Testament, you don't grow on the olive tree that way, you have to be grafted, you have to be brought in by professional faith, okay, that's an argument. But let's try to float it in Judean synagogues in the first century Without controversy. I don't think that's possible. Will be God. So, continuing episode 294, in our study of hemartheology, words representing sins in the Greek New Testament, we come now to the word hetema, H E T T E M A, hetema, which occurs in two places. In one place, Romans eleven twelve, 12, it is translated as diminishing. It's translated as diminishing. This refers to how the backgrounding of the Jews was a great blessing to the Gentiles. Here it is. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, that is, if the fall of the Jews is a blessing to the world, and the diminishing of them, there's our word hetema, the riches of the Gentiles, so Jews are diminished, the Gentiles rise, how much more their fullness? So, if the diminishing of the Jews was a blessing to the Gentiles, how much more will the fullness of the Jews be a blessing to the Gentiles. Now, this is not so much a sin as it is a demotion that is connected to other sins like unbelief. It is translated as failure in other versions, like the NASB and the NKJV and the ESV. What does their failure be but riches to the Gentiles? The one place where it refers to a sin proper is in 1 Corinthians. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault, there's our word hetema, now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? This is 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7. Paul is here bewildered by the spiritual obtuseness that would make a Christian believe that it would ever be appropriate to take a fellow believer into civil court in order for unbelievers to adjudicate a dispute between Christians. Don't you know who you are? Paul asks. Now, in, in um in pointing this out, we should be careful to note that the problem is not one of having the civil magistrate settle the dispute. That would be fine in a Christian republic. If we had Christian laws, biblical laws, a Christian judge, Christian legislature, Christian neighborhood, and you had some dispute, a property line dispute between two Christians, living in a Christian neighborhood in a Christian town with Christian judges, and so forth then the uh the prohibition that Paul utters here in first Corinthians six would not apply. Paul is not saying don't Christians never ever should go into civil court. he's saying you you should never ever ask unbelieving pagans to tell you what justice is. That's the thing Paul just finds it absolutely humiliating and one of the one of the things that I found astonishing over the years and i've seen numerous instances of this is when you get to a certain dollar amount for many christians this principle simply goes out the window and and there are all sorts of rationales and you know um, things no you can't you can't sue a fellow believer in civil court in in civil unbelieving court if you do hetema God! All right, so carrying on with episode 294 of the podcast, we come now to a my book review. And the book uh, is written by a gent named Geary, G-E-A-R-Y, G-E-A-R-Y, Geary. And the book is called Wits End, Wits End. And it's a study of <laughs> what it is to be a wit. All right, what, what is wit? What is it to be witty? What is it to become a wit? And so on. It's a very, very interesting book, which I I forget where I saw it referenced, but I picked it up and and read through it pretty quickly. And here's the here's the deal. Sometimes uh, I'll be a little bit autobiographical here, if you'll excuse me. I have to say that I am not an academic. I read a lot, and I write a lot, and I teach a lot. I'm a pastor, but I'm not an academic. And I'm not even what I would call a scholar. Those things are over my head. I think someone might say, "Well, what are you? That you're you're something? Yeah. <laughs> what are you?" I would say, "Well, I think I'm a wit." All right. To which someone will reply, "Well, you're half right." <laughs> anyway, I love words. I love the rumble tumble of words. I love rummaging in dictionaries. I love reading books of quotations. I love books like this, Wits End. And I'll, I'll put it this way. This, uh, this fellow, Geary, did a really good job of assembling a bunch of quotes on wit and observations from different thinkers about wit. Some of his arrangement, I think, is a, is a bit tedious, and some of the things he does is not, not quite the thing, but it was still well worth the read. If you're interested in the subject at all, as I certainly am, it was well worth the uh, well worth the time spent. A lot of people have spent a lot of time analyzing what is it, what you know, where did that snappy comeback come from? What is um <laughs> what is it that makes our brain go in that direction? Uh, this uh, writer, Geary, points out that punning much the much disparaged pun. Is something that sort of equips people, trains people to think in witty categories. So I'll just leave you with that. It's um, worthwhile. I'll commend it with a few provisos.